0: We are enemies of God without Christ. That's part of, of what Paul talks about in chapter five. We have transgressed God's law, and so we're worthy of the punishment due God's enemies. We are helpless. We cannot do it ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. But the second point that comes out loud and clear in in Romans is that God is love, and God loves his creation, okay? And so God has gifted his son as the means by which we can be saved, the means by which we can be reconciled. So he's made available Christ to all men. But what's the third point? God is just. And in order for him to remain just, then he created a consistent means by which man can be saved, man can be reconciled back to him. And that consistent means is through Christ, through an obedient faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And so we've talked about the exclusivity Christianity. That is the only way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but through me. That maintains God's just nature. But what is an obedient faith? What does that mean? And so Paul talks about that. He describes that obedient faith looking to whom? Whose example does Paul cite To tell us, to educate us as to what obedient faith is all about. Abraham. So what about Abraham? Where he fully trusted in God's ability to deliver on his promises. And Abraham obeyed without question. Even when it didn't make sense from a human reasoning perspective. And so that is that type of obedient faith it acts it obeys and it trusts fully in God well how do we obtain that obedient faith and we'll get to this or in the next quarter we get to this in Romans 10 but how does faith come about hearing and so you'll notice that going all the way back into Romans 1 what was the mechanism? What's God's power to save man, to produce this obedient faith? It's the gospel. And he even talks about that and references it in chapter 6, which you, when you looked at last week. So go to Romans 6, verse 16. Do you not know that when you presented yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, notice, to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So the gospel is the mechanism by which God allows us to produce or to create that faith in us that is obedient. But when you think about our our sins, and they just keep piling up, piling up, piling up, and we'll talk more about that today in this this inner conflict that Paul has, And, and it's a personification for everybody. We all go through this struggle. Paul assures his audience, assures us, that the sacrifice of christ and the blood that is the propitiation for our sins and let's stop and remind ourselves what's propitiation think about in the under the law on the day of atonement what was the blood of the sacrifice what what was done with it it was sprinkled upon what the mercy seat and so christ's blood is now sprinkled upon the heavenly mercy seat. And that blood is greater than our sins. Make sense? And when you think about the grace of God, the love that he has, what was the point back in Romans, the fifth chapter that we looked at several weeks ago? That God's grace is greater than our sins. think there's a song on that correct am i remembering that okay beautiful song but it pictures the fact that god's grace god's love is far greater than the consequences of our sins and so going to last week's lesson that that brian did grace doesn't give us a license to sin Rather, grace demands a changed life. And so we actually now go into chapter 7 with that thought in mind. Because when you think about Paul's letter to the Romans, it's not divided into chapters. We put the chapters there. So you have to think about the fact that there's some connectivity between Romans 5, Romans 6, and Romans 7. Okay, so keep that in mind, and so when you think about, as we look at some, some thoughts that Paul sort of concludes and sums up at the end of chapter 7, we have to think about the fact that Paul assures his reader that only through Jesus Christ can man deliver himself from his wretched state, okay? Okay. Only Jesus Christ can do that. There is no other mechanism. And so with that in mind, I want to think about chapter the beginning of chapter 7 and connect it back to some thoughts in chapter 6. When, when you think about the fact that um, go, going back to the verse I just read, uh, verse 16 and 17 of chapter 6, what... What principle does Paul remind his reader of? There, there are two paths, right? Correct? There's not a third option. There are two options. Think about what Jesus himself said in his Sermon on the Mount. How many ways are there? Two. Two. There's the broad way, where does it lead to? Destruction. There's the narrow way that leads to, and that's the same concept here. So Paul is reminding his audience that you are either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. You cannot, there is not another option. And so he then tells his... And so what I want to do is he's, he's, he's making this concept, he's proving this point that we are slaves to sin, correct? Without Christ, we are slaves of sin. That's the point he's making. But what happens, we become obedient to that form of teaching to which we've committed, we, we, we become obedient to the gospel. And so what must happen? We must put away sin. And isn't that what Brian talked about last week? That when you're baptized into Christ, you put off that old man? You, you kill that old man of sin, Right? that's the point so think about the fact that as slaves we are are slaves to sin but through the teaching of the gospel we kill sin we crucify it and then we become a slave of righteousness does that make sense? we have crucified that body of sin now Go to verse 21 and 22, because he sort of sums up this idea about being slaves. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you were now ashamed? When they were slaves of sin, the outcome is what? Death. Verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So now, being slaves of righteousness, you can look forward to eternal life. But then he goes on to verse chapter 7. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. So what he's now going to do is he's going to take a principle to drive home this point of being either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness, and that as slaves of righteousness, you have put to death being a slave of sin. And so he's going to use the relationship of marriage to prove that point. Okay? So, that's why I like to connect verse 22 to chapter 7, verse 1. To me, chapter, verse 23 is sort of like a parenthetical clause, sort of out on the side. Paul's notorious for these parenthetical phrases and clauses. So, to me, verse 22 connects to chapter 7, verse 1. Okay? And so, he's now going to use this marriage law that everybody is familiar with, okay, to, to, to drive home the point of being a slave of righteousness and being a slave of righteousness, the fact that you have put to death the man of sin, okay? So notice it says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. So notice the parallel of what he's saying. Oh, Oh, wrong direction. So in the example to prove this point, he's showing that wife and husband, I'm going to name husband one, They're bound together. But just like putting to death the man of sin, if that husband one dies, oops, I'm going the wrong direction, that wife is released. Just like up there, the slave is released from sin when that man of sin dies. And now you are connected, you are joined to husband two, just like you are now joined to righteousness, and you're pursuing a life focused on righteousness. Do you see the parallel that he's trying to make here? He's trying to emphasize the fact that just like husband number one is dead, so is your former life as a slave of sin is dead, and you are now joined to Christ in righteousness. Okay. Now, that's a concept that should be very familiar to the Jews. Think about Hosea. What was the problem that Hosea was trying to communicate, or wasn't trying to, he was communicating to his people? Fidelity to God. Because the Israelites had made a commitment, right? Back at Mount Sinai to be faithful to God. They had made that commitment, but had they kept it? I should see lots of heads going this way. They did not keep it. And so what's the picture in Hosea? Adultery, harlotry. They had bound themselves, or joined themselves rather, to false religions. They had become unfaithful to God. And so they, in essence, were adulterers. And that's the picture you get on Hosea. And that same concept is here. You've put to death the man of sin. And so why are you trying to go back and live live in it? Okay? Any comments, questions? I sort of have a tendency to just... Go on, ah, Chris. Wait, just a second for the mic. Jason's doing the 50-yard dash. Thank you. I thought this uh, this illustration between um, the husband number one and the wife uh, being free to marry the second one was not so much a was not so much a uh, sin versus righteousness. And this is just my opinion. It seems like it's uh, that he's saying, okay, you were under the law. If you were to um, go outside of the law while you were under the law, while you were married to the first mm-hmm. husband, so to speak, then you would be sinning. However, if you, uh, in this case, we are your, your old law is dead, or you're dead to that law, and you are now joined to Christ, the mm-hmm. law of Christ. Yes, and that's a good segue to what I'm about to do now. So thank you. I couldn't have teed that up any better. Um, And so now he takes this comparison to the next level. Because just as Chris says, now notice in verse 4, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another. So now he's using the same thought process, the same parallel or example to prove home our point That the Jews so often wanted to do. And what was that? Go back. Go back. It's like Lot's wife looking back. Okay. And so what had they done? What had the Christian with Jewish heritage. What had they done when they accepted Christ? They put the old law to death. Right. Think about. And you can even think about this in. Uh, In chapter 6, they had crucified that old man, okay? So guess what? That law was dead because they had accepted Christ. And now they were joined to Christ. So why go back to the law? The law was dead to them. Think about Galatians, uh, the second chapter, Uh, Let's begin verse 19, Galatians 2 19. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Same language. Similar language, let me put it that way. The idea that the, that the Jew who has accepted Christ has put to death that law. They are released from the law and they are now joined to Christ because they have crucified that body just like Christ crucified his body for us. Now... Another comment I'll make, but go ahead, Tolly. I was just going to say Christ fulfilled. He fulfilled the law. Mm-hmm. The law brought us to Christ. Yeah. He didn't, as we, I can't, what is the scripture? He He did not abolish it. He fulfilled it. He, he came it. to fulfill so it. So therefore, it, yeah. was, it was dead. It was obsolete. You know, it was not that it was completely destroyed. I mean, that's part of the the value of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews shows the supremacy of Christ and the new covenant over that which uh, is the the old covenant now I'm also going to say I'm also going to say this um, and, and I hope you understand sort of what where my mind is going here clearly the the Jew has put to death the law but what did Christ do to the law he completed it But I guess I'm specifically thinking about Ephesians, the second chapter, Colossians 2. What did Jesus do to the law? He nailed it to the cross. In essence, his crucifixion crucified the law. Okay? So, the law is dead. And so that's the point that he's ultimately getting to. And I started back with the slave relationship to sin and righteousness because To me, it all flows nicely, okay? Looking at slave to sin versus righteousness, using the example of the husband and the wife, and then bringing home the fact that, Jew, the law is dead. You are joined to Christ, not the law. Because notice in verse, in, in verse 7 now, the question is, and this would be the logical thought question of his readers, so Paul anticipates the question, and that is, well, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So the law served a valuable purpose, did it not? And that's the point that Paul is trying to make to his reader. The law served a purpose. But that those purposes have been fulfilled. So, now, um, let, me, let me catch up to my notes. I'm going to go ahead. Let, let's, let, let me talk about this for a little bit. You'll notice I've got several purposes up here. And you say, Carrie, how are you getting all of this? Okay, well, you have to think about my mind. Okay, and I'll just leave you to that after you know, this class for a quarter. You can talk to my wife, and she can give you more insight into this crazy mind of mine. But to me, thou shalt not covet. That's not the point that he's trying to make, not to covet. He's using covet, the law on covetousness, to talk about the whole purpose of the law. And when you think about the purpose of the law, it's really multifaceted. And I'm driving, I, want this, I want to drive this point home because so often I think we fail to see the value in the law in our lives today. We are not under the law, but there are things that we can learn from the law. There's a reason we still have the old covenant and so I want to drive home a couple of points here, okay? Number one, as, as Paul talks about, I wouldn't know what covetous was without the law. And so number one, the law gives us a knowledge of sin, okay? We understand what sin is. Because when you think about the law, would you have an understanding of human behavior? Would you have an an understanding of really what it means to covet, to honor your parents, to honor human life, to honor and how you show honor to your neighbor? Think about all the aspects of the law in which it deals with. And we get a glimmer, a glimpse of what God's expectations are of his people. Does that make sense of what I'm saying? We understand adultery. We understand uh, immorality. We understand all of the they're laws that relate f- between human uh, Jason Cameron Collins, back in the in the corner. So think about just the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20 and those that relate to people, between the relationships between people. Think about Leviticus eighteen and nineteen and 20. All those laws you get to see. The ugliness of sin before God. Cameron? Uh, just to go along with that, and uh, reminded of 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, in our, I think our well-known verses 16 and 17, all scripture is given. But before that, um, Paul is commending Timothy that he from childhood had learned and became equated with the sacred writings, which mm-hmm. is the law. Um, And it's showing the importance of that and how it brings them to Christ Mm -hmm. through the law. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And that's actually one of my points here, the knowledge of Christ. So here we have this knowledge of sin. But does the law also tell us the cost of sin, the consequence of sin, the ugliness of sin? Think about all of the animal sacrifices. I go back to David's lesson, David Creech's lesson. Uh, I don't know, several years ago. Of looking at the cost to, to them, the Jews in an agricultural society. Think of all those sacrifices and could any of it take away the sin? But what did it do? Hebrews 10. It was a reminder, right? Right? Of their condition before God. That's the value of the law. We see not only a knowledge of sin and what God expects of his people, but we also see the ugly consequences of sin. But even beyond that, what do we know about God? Isn't that how, don't we start knowing about God on Genesis 1 1? You think about the Ten Commandments and the first, what, four or five deal with God and the fact that there is no other God but God. And in our society, what is God? It's just a byword, right? But through the law, we understand his nature, his glory, his power, his omnipotence. His omniscience. That's connected to then the knowledge of Christ. And that is, think about all the prophecies. From Genesis, the third chapter, all the way to to Malachi. About the prophecies that God lays out about the coming Christ. And what does Paul say in Galatians, the third chapter? What was the law? It was a a tutor to lead us to Christ. So without the law, could we know Christ? Could we know with certainty that the man in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was the Christ? No. There's value in the law. And we need to understand the value. Even as Christians, we need to understand the value of the law. And without the law, I'm even, and I didn't put this on here, and I almost did, but I thought, no, I, I, I won't. I'll just talk through it. But having the law also tells us how to reason the, through the scriptures. And you're thinking, Carrie, what are you talking about? I'm going to give you three examples that are in the New Testament of how the New Testament writer reasons from the Old Covenant where the Jews should have known something. Number one, Matthew 22, about the resurrection. On the tense of a verb, the people should have known there was a resurrection. What does that say for us when we study the scripture we need to make sure that we're accurately and really digging into the scriptures to make sure that we're not missing something. You understand? The tense of a verb, God expected his people to understand there was a resurrection. Think about Hebrews. Jeremiah 31 talks about a new covenant coming. What point does the Hebrew writer make? The fact that there was a new covenant coming, what should they have put together? The fact that an old one, the existing one, was going away. Did the Jews get it? One word. Is that an adjective? I'm not very good in English, but I think that's an adjective. So not a verb, but an adjective. He expected his people to understand Something was going to change. Staying in Hebrews, think about the fact that there was a, a tribe, the priest. What tribe was the priest from? Levi. Levi. Where was Christ from? Judah. A tribe which the law spoke nothing about with regard to the, priestly, uh, the, the, the priest. So that teaches us the value of the silence of the scripture. We can't assume something that's not there. So why am I going on to all of this? Like I said, there's a lot of value in the Old Covenant and studying the Old Covenant. And I'm just going to say, we need to be teaching our young kids the value of the Old Covenant and really getting into the Old Covenant and reasoning through that Old Covenant because without it, they won't understand the new. And I'm gonna use myself as a, a case in point. I didn't have the value of a good background in Old Testament growing up. You'd study this, you'd study this, you'd study this. My mind couldn't connect the dots. It wasn't until I was a freshman in college going through Freshman Bible that I was able to connect the dots. We started from the beginning, we worked our way all the way through. And I could see the, I, I, I saw the connectivity. We need to be sure we're doing the same thing with our children. We need to be connecting those dots for them. Because the law, there's a lot of value in it, and it points to Christ. And they may not be able to get Christ without really understanding the law. Does that make sense what I'm saying? We don't need to just pass over the Old Covenant. So, now, going through, then, I want to think about the fact that Paul goes through this struggle. He now, he now gives himself as an example of this struggle that men go through. Notice what he says in verse 9. And I was once alive apart from the law. He was alive But what happened? What did the law do? As he became aware of the law, what did he do? He sinned. Notice, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me. And through it killed me. Now, did the law cause Paul to sin? No. The law itself does not cause somebody to sin. If that were the case, then James is incorrect, right? Because what does James 1, what, 15, 13 through 15 say? God does not tempt anybody. So, if to say that the law caused someone to sin, then you are in essence saying God is causing someone to sin. And notice again, verse 13 of chapter of James 1: Let no one say when he is tempted, "I am being tempted by God," for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. So, what caused Paul to sin? Yes, the, the, the law brought about a knowledge. But was that knowledge the reason for his sin? He gave into temptation. temptation. Sin deceived him. Think back to Genesis 1. What happened to Eve? She was deceived. That connects to 1 Timothy, the second chapter. Eve was deceived. Who's the great deceiver, the great liar, the father of lies? Satan, it's his nature to deceive. That's how he gets people, because he deceives them. Oh, it's not that bad. What's going to happen isn't that bad? It's going to be worth it, right? God says, oh, no, don't pay any attention to God. No, no, no. Okay, so... So he's deceived, and so now, notice in verse 12, so then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is good, right? We just talked about the value of the law. It was good. It served a purpose, a very useful purpose to lead us to Christ. But it didn't cause Paul to sin. And so, notice in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage of sin. And then he begins this description of this conflict that he is going through. He says, "For, For that which I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. And so it's like this spiral just going out of control. And isn't that the nature of sin? You just start down this path and it's like getting caught in this whirlwind or in a, I don't know, just you're spiraling out of control. That's the nature of sin. And that's this conflict that Paul is describing in himself and if it is in Paul, Paul is representative of everyone, of all men. Because we cannot get ourselves out of this whirlwind. We can't get it. We're, again, we're helpless. And so notice in verse 16, but if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells in me. It's like sin takes over us. Okay? That's not to say that we are by nature sinful people. But we continue to be deceived by the nature of sin. And we sink lower and lower and lower in sin and i couldn't help but think about paul's message to the ephesians cuz to me it's it's very similar in the description and verse 1 of chapter 2 of ephesians where we are slaves of sin. And so this is that picture that we're just uh, focused on sin. For the, the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which indwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me and the one who wishes to do good. But notice he said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Again, the law could not save. That's Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It kept us aware of sin, but it couldn't take it away. So we are wretched. The Jew was wretched. Man is wretched in his sinful state. But what is the solution? The next verse, notice he says, Who will set me free from the body of this death? He's like looking for a solution. And that solution is Jesus. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And so Jesus Christ is the solution. Jesus Christ frees us from that bondage of sin. Jesus frees us from the law of sin. That's not to say that we're not going to sin from time to time. That's 1 John, right? Right? But through Christ, what do we have with the Father? He's an advocate that we can go to in times of trial and trouble and in sin. I was just to I know you to out. I know your spirit, is willing, but your, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And I think that's the point. Our flesh is weak. Mm-hmm. We have willing spirits. Paul had wearing a willing spirit, but he knew the flesh was weak. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, because, I mean, there's this desire to do God's will, but the reality of it is the flesh is weak. We are deceived. We continue to be deceived. There is, I mean, yes, we crucify the man of sin when we accept Christ in baptism, Right. But does that mean all of our troubles and trials and temptations are over? No. And so we continue to be deceived even after putting on Christ. And we may have this struggle within us even today. But what confidence should we have about the struggle that we have even today as Christians? christ we can overcome christ is the answer to our dilemma and so as we move into chapter eight we're going to be talking about more about the the freedom and the release of sin and guilt that we have through christ and he concludes about the victory that christians have in christ leanne real quick i just wanted to say real quick um Paul Paul was zealous and he thought he was doing the right thing when he was killing the Christians and he was persecuting God's church. So you can be zealous and thinking that you're doing the right thing and still committing a sin. And so, um, you know, to me, Galatians, the third chapter, is parallel. If you look at verse 10, beginning in verse 10, for as many as. As are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in christ jesus the blessing of abraham might come to the gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith and so in in chapter 8 we'll talk next week a lot about the spirit uh, and the flesh that's this part that we'll look at next week chapter 8 verses 1 through 17 I think the doors are about to open because it is almost time according to that (laughs) clock thank you.